This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. What's good, y'all? This is GD. So, earlier today, we found out that Code Switch, our little podcast, was named Apple's Podcast of the Year, which is wild because there are, like, a bajillion podcasts out there, but also because, like, (laughs) what a long way we have come. And I kind of just want to talk to you about the news landscape over the years since we've been doing this. Because after Ferguson, a bunch of big-name news outlets that you've almost certainly heard of, um, they started teams that focused on race and justice and marginalized people in the United States. And those teams and those verticals covering race they're all gone now. Not because the work wasn't good or it wasn't important and the journalists that were working at those places weren't talented, because it was, and they were. But because the very big media organizations they belong to decided that covering the stuff was too hard um, and it didn't make money. That's really just what it was in the end, just point blank. So if you really bang with us at Code Switch... I need to tell you that we probably would not even be here right now were it not for the fact that public radio is not profit-driven. And we got a chance to find our footing and an audience because of the support listeners like y'all give to your local public radio stations. So I wanted to thank you on behalf of Shireen and the rest of the crew. And also... I wanted to ask you to support your local public radio station because that support makes this podcast and other podcasts at NPR possible. And the way you can do that is by going to donate.npr.org slash code switch. Thank you, y'all. And, you know, be easy. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Demby. And this is Code Switch. From NPR. Shereen, you know what I've really, really, really been missing during this whole pandemic situation? Mm, I bet the list is long. Eating at restaurants, maybe? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> flirting with strangers? You are a flirt, uh, even though you're married? Me, how about you, that one? You, how about you put me on blast? Shereen, <laughs> I'm a flirt? Okay, okay. Okay, anyway, having a reason to get dressed in the morning. How about that? Yes, that's a big one. I absolutely, yes. I you know what like, I miss? Not having to worry about infecting people or being infected by a deadly respiratory illness. And I'm sure you yes. missed that too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All those things. But I was specifically thinking about something a little bit more, but now like a little bit less, you know, like weighted. I just mm. really miss gossip. I miss mess. Mm. Oh, do you? I do not miss that. In my family, there's no escape. From the bochinche. <laughs> what does that mean? Meaning there's plenty of gossip going around my family. You know, who's wearing masks? Who's not wearing masks? Who was over at whose house in Puerto Rico, here in the United States? Who's tested positive for COVID? Who voted for which politician running for governor of Puerto Rico? Who voted for Trump? And should they stay in the family? <laughs> like, all of this gossip is happening. But that's what I'm saying. Like, all the gossip right now feels like it's weighted with the stakes of, like, our mortality. You know what I mean? Like, who is doing Thanksgiving or brunching without social distancing? You know what I mean? Like, stuff yeah. like that. It's all, like, right. we're all in danger. Yeah. Well, you're in luck for a different type of gossip. Oh. Because today we are bringing all of you an episode from our Ask Code Switch series. And for those of you who are new around here, Ask Code Switch is where we take our listeners' deepest, darkest, juiciest, most personal questions about race and identity. And we give them thoughtful, well-researched advice 
about what to do. Yes. It is, you know, basically gossip. <laughs> but, you know, we, we dress it up, make it professional. You know, we, we give it some larger social stakes. But it's still mess. We love mess. Marie Kondo dot GIF. GIF. Exactly. I'm about to Google that GIF. And this week, we're looking at a few of our favorite ever questions from Ask Code Switch. They get into money and family and relationships, language and friendship. Messy, messy, messy topics, Gene. Full of emotion, full of high stakes. So, yeah, let's listen to some OPPs. I'm down with OPP. Oh, my God. I just dated myself. All right, let's get into it. Yeah, you know me. All right, so the first question I think you will remember well. It's about something that is probably at the top of a lot of people's minds right now as we head deeper into the holiday season, backdropped by a global pandemic and financial recession. High stakes indeed. The topic is money plus race, obviously, and some relationship stuff thrown in, you know, just to keep people on their toes. I remember this. This is... One of my favorite questions we've ever done is really complicated. It's really messy. And we got a lot of feedback on it, like maybe more feedback than we've gotten on anything that we've ever done. Yes, people were not happy with some of the advice. So let's get into that advice right now with our first expert. I'm Michelle Singletary. I'm a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. And my column is called The Color of Money and is syndicated in dozens of newspapers across the country. Are you ready to hear a question from one of our listeners? I'm ready. Here we go. Is there an argument for my white, upper middle class, cisgendered male partner to cover more expenses and pick up the bill more? My salary is currently much higher than his, but there's so much context and nuance to our individual wealth. Is there an argument that white people dating IBPOC women, now that's an acronym for Indigenous, Black, and People of Color women, um, is there an argument that white people dating IBPOC women should pay more in general due to systematic inequalities outside the romantic relationship? That question came to us from Jennifer Gao. What do you think, Michelle? I love this question. (laughs) She's dating. Forget the family background. Who came from money? Who makes more? Because that really doesn't matter. So she says, okay, what do they want to do as a dating couple? And can they afford it? Lay it out on the table. Clearly, there's been racism and there's pay inequity and gender inequity and all that kind of stuff. But you don't need to bring all that into your relationship. Michelle, regardless of whether you want to bring it into the relationship or not, Mm -hmm. it's there, right? Mm -hmm. It's there. So you might as well address it. I get it. I came from a low income background. You know, I understand what that feels like. And you just you're worried about your family. But what his people has has nothing to do with him and what he has. She already said that he makes less than her. So the only thing on the table for their relationship is her income and his income. That's all she needs to bring to the table. Now, certainly she should talk about it and express her concerns and they should be in couples therapy. And I know that sounds crazy, like they're not even married. yet. Absolutely. (laughs) Because you want to put all that stuff out there. Mm-hmm. If there's going to be resentment on the table, then that's going to affect their relationship as a married couple. I believe once you go down that road that you're seriously talking about that, put everything on the table. So it's okay that she's not feeling comfortable. It's okay that she's feeling a little like things are not fair, you know, but recognize that all that matters in that relationship is what he has in his bank accounts and what she has in her bank account and how as a couple will they share their wealth. 
All right, GD. So that's Michelle's take. Okay. She was adamant that you should not expect your partner to pay more just because they've got those white male privilege bennies. <laughs> mm. She says it's better to keep it micro to just you and your partner and figure out what you can afford based on what you guys make. The big picture stuff, we're talking racism, colonialism, housing segregation, mm. the gender pay gap. She says, leave that out of it because it's not good for your relationship. How can that dude carry all that weight? Right? That's not his fault. It might be his people's fault. <laughs> you know? But it's not his fault. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so on one (laughs) level, I sort of get what she's saying, right? And there's Mm -hmm. a way in which all these big historical and social forces, like, that play out in our lives get really messy when we talk about interpersonal relationships, right? Like, are the dynamics between you and your partner about your personalities or are they about, like, this sort of, like, aggregation of, you know what I mean, momentum of all this stuff, right? At the same time, like, wealth is not nothing, and that's the thing that's racialized, right? Like, yes, you're in a relationship with someone and you're talking about your your individual incomes. But if your partner stands to inherit wealth or if your partner has a life that is subsidized by his family's wealth, that's that's part of it, too. It is. And we talked to Jennifer and she said that's definitely the case for her partner. So that's one of the reasons why I asked for a second opinion from Janelle Jones. I'm an economic analyst at Economic Policy Institute, where I work on our program on race, ethnicity, and the economy, studying black workers and economic outcomes. So Jean Janelle says the white cisgender male partner in this relationship should be paying more. Mm. Period. Oh, my God. Yes. No, he should be paying most of it. So let me just step back a little bit and talk a little bit about the racial wealth gap. So we know that whites have so much more wealth than every other race and ethnicity. It's been this way for generations. And so there was new data released in 2016 that shows this is actually still true, and it's actually getting worse. So mm. the racial wealth gap between, specifically between blacks and whites is like 1 to 10. Mm-hmm. And this is crazy. So like for every $1 of wealth that a black family has, a white family has $10 in wealth. And then when we look across race and gender... I mean, the story is even worse. Mm. So there's always going to be sort of a double discrimination that women of color in particular face in terms of wages and and in terms of wealth. So even though she's making more money than him, and she says in her note, my salary is currently much higher than his. So even though she's got way more pocket change, you're (laughs) saying, yes, he should be paying more. I still stick with that answer because the difference between wealth and wages is extreme, right? So wealth is something that builds on itself. Where you start has like a drastic impact on where you end up. And wealth is also that just like keeps growing. And it's a measure of economic health that is much more important than wages. So you might be making more money, but, you know, a medical expense comes up, that hits your wages, and that that makes a real dent. You have to loan some money to a cousin. You want to help another cousin go to college. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things hit wages and don't really recover in the same way that wealth does. Wealth is something you can always fall back on, always draw into. um, And having more wealth definitely means that he should pay more. I just stand by that. Okay, so what about people who say this woman is falling back on old school gender (laughs) norms where the man pays more? Uh, What do you have to say to them? Yeah, I mean, I think once institutional, like, discrimination against gender and race are solved, I will be willing to pay my fair share. My ancestors, my parents, my grandparents, like, they are still owed something in terms of wealth from this country. Like, it has been 
physically taken from them. The idea that everyone is born and starts from the same place is crazy. And in terms of wealth, it's just like factually incorrect. Yes. There you have it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When we first got this question, I was like, oh, I don't know. And the more we yeah. talked about it a lot, I was like, I mean, you think about all of it. Shereen, we talk about this all the time, about the yes. stuff, that, the ways you are on the hook for all the stuff that happens in your family if you have a reasonably high income, if you're a person of color, right? Mm-hmm. There's this way in which it's uncomfortable to think about being in a relationship and also, like, <laughs> going on dates as, like, a as an avenue for reparations. But at the same time... <laughs> It's not. I mean, it's just, I feel like if they have a good relationship, they should sit down and talk it out and talk about all of these issues. I mean, yes. And yes. come to their own conclusion about what they want to do. It would be really hard, I think, thinking about things from his perspective to not get defensive. And Yes, of course. You know, if, if this is a partner that she really cares about and that she really loves, that's going to be a very uncomfortable conversation to have but hopefully now she has more information to help her with it all right shireen so it's been a couple years since you first tackled that question um have your thoughts on it changed at all listening back i think we did a good job answering that question Mm -hmm. and i really liked what janelle said Mm -hmm. which is what certain people were very very mad about a few years ago and we got a lot of tweets we got a lot of emails saying that they were not happy with what janelle said Uh, michelle singletary actually emailed me after that episode dropped and told me that her daughter and all her daughter's friends said janelle was right Mm. and michelle was wrong and that she was wrong which i thought was really interesting you know maybe there's a generational divide going on or something yeah i can't help but think but like for a lot of people like talking about money is just considered impolite you know what I mean like in general um, yeah like, especially people who are like older are like oh that's you know you don't talk about those things but of course you know what I mean capitalism is killing all of us young people anyway uh, <laughs> I feel more adamantly now about what Janelle said you know what I mean like the more I think about it like yeah our romantic relationships they don't exist in some kind of vacuum they're not cordoned off from the rest of the world from the rest of history it's not like you know you can say oh white supremacy exerts its drag on every part of our lives except when it comes to my boo like mm-hmm. nah all this stuff all this stuff racial capitalism familial wealth all this stuff has tangible like real life material consequences for individual people in relationships and they show up in our relationships so yeah And we have more Ask Code Switch coming up after the break. Get ready for questions like this. I mean, I think I'm at a place right now where I think I'm a lot more comfortable in a room full of white people than in a room full of Asian people. And like, what does that make me? Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short- or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code CODESWITCH to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase 
and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Since the 1980s, hip-hop and America's prisons have grown side by side. And we're going to investigate this connection to see how it lifts us up and holds us down. Hip-hop is talking about what we live, trying to live the American dream, failing at the American dream. I'm Sydney Madden. I'm Rodney Carmichael. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Hey, so it's the break. Did you give yet? Did you? I'm just nudging you gently that if you have a little something to put in the collection plate, you can do so by going to donate.mpr.org slash codeswitch. Back to the show. Gene. Shireen. Codeswitch. All right, we're back with some of our absolute favorite Ask Code Switch questions of all time, as Kanye would have said. Uh, this one is about another topic that folks are thinking about a lot this time of year. Food. Although, to be honest, when are we not thinking about food? Yes, this is a fantastic point, Shereen. Yes. <laughs> food. It's very important. Food. <laughs> it's what keeps us alive. All right, we're going to get help answering this one from our editor, Leah Danella. You're also going to hear the voice of our teammate, Karen Grigsby-Bates. And I'm going to disappear for a few minutes. So here's Leah. Okay, so my question comes from a woman named Jasmine. Mm -hmm. She's a first-year college student at UC San Diego. She's Chinese-American, the daughter of immigrants. And she grew up outside of Boston. Ooh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and (laughs) uh, she has eaten meat her whole life. But for the last three and a half years, she's been a vegetarian. And for some reason, I've been feeling recently a little less Chinese because I can't eat a lot of Chinese food. And in a general sense, I just feel less Asian because being vegetarian also means I can't enjoy other cuisines like Korean barbecue and ramen with my Asian friends. I'm probably going to be traveling around East Asia sometime in the next couple of years, and I don't know how I'm going to eat. I never thought I'd go back to eating meat, but I'm genuinely seriously thinking about it now because of the spatial identity crisis I'm having. Okay, crisis is probably a little dramatic. Uh, a little. Probably. Yeah. Just a little bit. But Jasmine explained to me that this pain that she's feeling was not just about not eating meat. It was about feeling this space between her and her family. Back in September, she took a trip with her mom to visit her brother in Chicago. And, of course, we went to Chinatown, and we found a restaurant to eat at, and we sit down, we're ready to order, and I'm trying to communicate with the waiter. So Jasmine is trying to communicate that she wants this dish, but she wants it with no meat. And she's trying to do this in Chinese. Uh But the server doesn't understand quite what she's saying. It's kind of loud in the restaurant. She thinks maybe it's an accent thing, so she tries again. It still doesn't go well. And then her mom has to step in and explain... And the server is like, okay, we never do this. We never make this dish without meat, but I guess. It's it's like this whole situation is just me, a Chinese person, barely speaking Chinese, trying to order a barely Chinese dish. And I don't I just felt so 
sad. Part of that sadness came from feeling like she was a disappointment to her mom, who she says raised her to be Chinese. I'm in Chinatown. I'm surrounded by Chinese people in this Chinese restaurant. But I could not have felt less Chinese in that moment. So, Leah, um, it sounds like there's a lot going on here in this exchange. Yeah, I thought so, too. It sounded like Jasmine was getting at something deeper at the heart of her question. It's not about the food per se, but it's also about the emotions that those different comfort foods evoke in us. That's Pat Tanumi Harja. She's a cookbook author and a food blogger. The memories that they bring back, the memories of cooking in the kitchen with your grandmother or your mother, and to the warm and fuzziness that you feel, you know, like when you were sick and your mom would serve you, let's say, um, you know, a, a congee that was all comforting. Pat grew up in Indonesia and Singapore. Her parents are of Chinese descent mostly. Mm-hmm. And she's also the author of two cookbooks. And her blog, Pickles and Tea, is full of recipes and beautiful food photography. But she says her work is really about telling stories about what it means to be Asian American through the lens of food. And over the years that she's been writing and cooking, she said one really important thing is that the way we eat, like all elements of culture, is constantly changing. Right. So one big takeaway she has for Jasmine is that she shouldn't have to feel bad about changing up family traditions. Food, like language and culture, is meant to evolve. It can't stay stagnant forever. So, yeah, I don't feel guilty about switching things up, you know. It, it's the memories and the feelings of nostalgia that is what connects you to your family. It's not, it's not chicken or beef or pork. Jasmine seemed to have these really poignant memories of cooking and eating dumplings with her grandparents. Nowadays, they make vegetarian dumplings for her. Oh. Ah, yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah. And Pat has written that we think of grandmothers particularly as the closest link that we have to our cultures and traditions. They're the ones who have the language on their lips, the the recipes in their hands, and, you know, the, the experiences and the memories in their hearts and in their minds. But Pat says we should also take that with a bit of a grain of salt. For her first cookbook, she hung out with a bunch of grandmothers. That book is called The Asian Grandmother's Cookbook. Uh-huh. And she said talking to these women, she started to realize that our grandparents are not necessarily passing down these ancient ancestral traditions every time they cook. Mm-hmm. The women that Pat spoke to were mixing things up all the time. Because, you know, they arrived in the U.S., say, like in, a, in the 70s and in the 80s. And while there were a few Asian markets, you know, they were really tiny and they didn't carry a lot of the ingredients that you would find back in Asia. So, you know, you you just have to adapt. And by the way, even if you go back to the so-called original source of the culture, like if you were to literally travel to China in Jasmine's case, mm-hmm. even eating that food might not feel satisfying as a way to connect to Chinese culture because, as Pat is saying, what you're missing isn't some sort of objective, finite thing. Pat, as we said earlier, she grew up in Indonesia for a part of her childhood. And growing up, she ate a lot of homemade Indonesian food. But whenever I go back to Indonesia, you know, I find that the dishes are different from what I remember because, you know, the food that my mom cooked for us was probably, you know, maybe a little outdated. So it was like fixed in time in a lot of ways. Well, it's filtered through the fog of fond memory. Mm-hmm. Also, even technology was different at that point. Yeah, so many changes. All of which is to say, Jasmine, you might feel a lot of pressure to do things a certain way, to be Chinese enough. 
And that pressure can come from all over the place. It can come from families or friends and especially yourself. But you are Chinese-American, so whatever you do is Chinese-American. Now, I didn't want to ignore the more practical aspects of Jasmine's question because I think there are some really simple things you can do to make being a vegetarian easier. And for help with that, I tracked down a chef named Eddie Garza. I, so I didn't know how many people were coming. So I said, oh, I'll make, a, I'll make a feast. It's a party. When we talked to him, he had just finished whipping up a huge batch of jackfruit tamales at his house in Miami Beach. So a quick jackfruit explanatory comma. Jackfruit's a tropical fruit. It's a member of the fig family and has kind of sweet, stringy, meaty pulp. Right. And so as you might be able to guess from that, um, Eddie does not cook or eat with any animal products. He's a vegan. But that wasn't always the case. So like Jasmine and like Pat, he has a lot of fond memories of cooking with his grandmother. She was the typical Mexican grandmother who cooked for the entire family. All my tios and tias would come to her house after work or after school or anything, and she was cooking all day. So when I would come back from school, I would end up cooking in the kitchen with her. Eddie said when he first became a vegan more than 10 years ago, his family was thrown for a little bit of a loop. I remember it was at a Thanksgiving celebration at my grandmother's house that my mother didn't know what to serve me. Everybody was eating turkey and tamales filled with pork. And my mother sliced an apple into quarters. And she's like, happy Thanksgiving. I was like, (laughs) oh, that's not really how this works, mom. (laughs) Okay. But mom can be forgiven for that because, you know, vegetarian, you can kind of get, okay, no meat, no fish, no poultry. Mm -hmm. But Vegan has additional rules to it. Exactly, yeah. And Eddie said that was it. Like, he didn't feel like his family was judging him. They just really did not know what to do with him. So I had to go and explain that, listen, I like the same Thanksgiving flavors. You know, everybody loves that nutmeg, the smell and taste. And you always, in Thanksgiving, you expect that sage and rosemary and thyme. And uh, it was really just getting them to understand that I want the same flavors. I just need them in a different vehicle. So for Jasmine, here's another takeaway. It's really helpful, Eddie said, to explain to your family, sometimes, multiple times, why you care about not eating meat. And you can tell them, whether it's about animal cruelty or environmental justice or health reasons, that your choice is coming from a place of conviction and it's not a rejection of culture or family. Um, And that doesn't mean they're going to love it right away. And it definitely doesn't mean that you'll stop missing the experience of eating meat with them. But it might help them understand that this isn't just you, like, being weird and obnoxious. One thing that Eddie brought up is that there's a, a kind of perception in the U.S. that being a vegetarian or being a vegan is a super white thing to do. We think of vegans as, like, white Instagram models with smoothies. Um, <laughs> and some of them are. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are. Um, but there are a lot of cultures that have traditions of vegetarianism and veganism that go back hundreds or thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So I grew up thinking that Mexican food was very meaty, but really it's only a region of Mexico. And I always do like to go and talk about some of the traditions of Mexico before Europeans came in. Mexico was a huge, huge, huge user of just naturally plant-based foods. So obviously Eddie is talking about Mexican cuisine, but his point is true more broadly. So China has a thousands of years old Buddhist tradition, which mm-hmm. is strictly vegetarian. Right. Yep. And one source I read says that China is home to 50 million vegetarians. A small town in China. Yep. It's not a whole food shopping. <laughs> exactly. And, and the same is true for a lot of different countries. So you can 
you can go pretty much anywhere and find a lot of people who are vegetarians. Being a vegetarian does not make you any less Asian. You can probably find a bunch of Asian vegetarians even at your school in San Diego. So find them, have potlucks with them. And then I would say to Jasmine also, you can find your people online too. Jasmine said she plans to travel around Asia, and there are hundreds of bloggers who have paved the way of finding delicious vegetarian food in every country in the world. So that might even be an excuse to learn more about your culture and history or to open up conversations with your parents and grandparents about their lives and how their traditions have changed over time. And one last thing I'll say to Jasmine is that it's really great if you are very dedicated to being a vegetarian, but it doesn't have to be an absolute thing. So why not eat meat on special occasions or when you're traveling or when your grandparents come over? I think you get to decide at any given moment what's the most meaningful thing to you and what makes you feel connected to the people and communities around you. Also, it's not a life sentence. You can do what Jean did, do it for a while, decide it's not for you, and don't do it anymore. Yeah, and then give up on the environment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Leah. Thank you. I'm back. Oh, my God. Some warning next time, Shereen. Damn, you scared me. I'm sorry, Jean. I'm very excited to talk to you again. That was way too long for me not to be in the mix. <laughs> All right, so what's next? <laughs> You're about to combust. Okay. Um, it's time for a question that I reported out. This one is about that ever-tense topic, friendship. Oh, yes. This one comes from our What About Your Friends episode. Mm-hmm. And some quick context for it. In our reporting about race and friendship, we talked a lot about the complications that exist in interracial friendships. And in that episode, I talked to Grace Cow. She's a sociologist at Yale who's done a ton of research on interracial friendships. And she told us that Asian Americans are more likely than black and white Americans to have friends outside of their race. Mm -hmm. Those friends tend to be white. And that's possibly because Asian Americans are more likely to go to predominantly white schools and live in predominantly white neighborhoods. Right. And that's pretty much exactly the situation that a college student named Amy found herself in when she wrote to us and when we talked to her back in the before times in 2019. I think I'm at a place right now where I think I'm a lot more comfortable in a room full of white people than in a room full of Asian people. And like, what does that make me? Okay, so Amy is a junior at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. She's the daughter of Chinese immigrants, and she was raised in a really, really white suburb. And that meant that I grew up, unfortunately, with very few friends of color, probably due to internalized racism, but also because there were very few people of color in my town and my school district in general. Hmm, Can we talk a little bit more about probably due to internalized racism? Ooh, listen, listen, listen. So Amy told us that when she was really young, she rejected her mom's Chinese cooking. Like, she actively avoided eating it. She was like, yo, I don't want to eat this. So her mom made Chinese food for everybody else. And I'm doing air quotes, American food for Amy. Wow, that was really nice of her mom. My mom would never have I know. <laughs> you're going to eat what I'm cooking. <laughs> or you're going to starve. <laughs> and the high school stuff was really interesting, too, because uh, Amy told us that she thought her high school was overwhelmingly white, but with some distance... A couple years out, she realized that it might not have been as white as she remembered. Mm. So her younger sister went to the same high school and managed to make a bunch of friends of color. Mm. So Amy just kind of actively avoided and blotted out the people of color who were around her. 
the few Asian friends I did have at the time were really hard friendships due to a lot of reasons that did not have to do with race. Amy also told us that she did not fit in with the other Asian girls in her high school because she was, in her words, loud and bad at math. Not the words I would use. Yeah, that, yeah. But as we were talking about before, white friend circles are policed to maintain their whiteness. And so Amy's friend circles, which are mostly white, have been full of people, she said, who tormented her. Uh, they would make fun of my parents' accents. They would call me Ling Ling. I remember my senior year of high school, I was officially labeled the, the token Asian friend by my friend group. And looking back, most of the bullying came from girls who were my friends, who were a part of my friend group, and who I remained friends with until we graduated high school. That makes me mad. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, it should. <laughs> it's, it's my... Ugh. So now, Amy's in college. She's wrestling with all these big questions about her identity, which is what folks do in college. Mm-hmm. But her social universe, it looks kind of the same. Hmm. She kept pointing out that her friends are her ride or dies, but they are just not making any space for her in conversations about race. Uh, I have white friends who patronize me and talk over me when it comes to discussing politics, particularly when it comes to discussing race and politics. And then being the one in charge of calling out microaggressions is also exhausting. And they were just like, is, is nothing okay? Like, why is like everything a problem for you? And it's just, I mean, their friendship is important and awesome, but it's hard when, like, this thing that means a lot to me feels like a burden to them. Hmm. Is the college that she goes to super white? So it is a PWI, a predominantly white institution. It's also way more diverse than the suburb she grew up in, uh, in the Twin Cities, the Minneapolis area. It's diverse, but she hasn't really availed herself of those communities. But she's trying where she wants to try. In fact, she talked to some other students of color about how she was feeling about all of this stuff. Another Asian girl who grew up in a suburban Minnesota suburb, like me, suggested that I stop talking to all my white friends because that's what they did in high school. And I was super confused and surprised and shocked by this suggestion because it's just never really occurred to me before. But my dilemma is, is there a healthy middle ground? Am I a sellout to my race? Can I keep on being friends with white people and still retain my identity? And am I allowed to be friends with people who are also sometimes oppressors? Hmm. Right. And also just want to say to Amy, like, she should know that she came out of these white suburbs, which are not accidentally white suburbs, right? They're segregated Mm -hmm. white suburbs for a reason. She came out of that place with the exact universe of ideas and skepticisms about brown people and people of color that those places are meant to reproduce. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, just because she's brown doesn't mean she would not have internalized any of that any less than all the white people who do that all the time. Luckily, we found an expert who thinks about stories just like this a lot. Amy's is a very typical story. Whose voice is that? Oh, yeah. My name is David Ng. David Ng is an English professor at the University of Pennsylvania in mighty, mighty Philadelphia. And I'm also a professor in Asian American Studies, Comparative Literature, and Women's Studies. And you are the author of? I am the author of a new book, Jean. <laughs> Co-authored with my dear friend, Shinhee Han, who is a New York-based psychotherapist. It's called Racial Melancholia, Racial Dissociation, 
on the social and psychic lives of Asian Americans. Damn, David Ng is doing all the things. He has all the woke jobs. <laughs> all the woke jobs. You know what I mean? He should be teaching Jamaican American studies too. Um, but yeah, <laughs> David and his co-author, Shin He, their book, Racial Melancholia, Racial Dissociation, is a collection of case histories and commentaries about Asian American college students that David and Shin He have encountered in their work. Because Asian American college students, they say, have a particular set of anxieties and concerns. Not dissimilar to the dilemma that Amy brings up here in her letter to Code Switch. And so in their work, David and Shin He are addressing those anxieties sociologically and psychologically. I do the structural critique. She tends to the symptoms. All right. So racial melancholia and racial dissociation. Let's get into those two things. Yeah, it's a little, little wonky sounding. Uh, we're going to explain a story comma here. For me, too, because I'm like, what? David said that way back in 1917, Sigmund Freud wrote this essay in reaction to World War I. It was called Mourning and Melancholia. Freud said that there's this thing called mourning. Mourning, which is normal. You lose something, lose a boyfriend, lose a girlfriend, lose a parent. You mourn it, you get over it. You move on. But there's this other thing called melancholia. Melancholia for him is never-ending. It's, for him, pathological, and it's a mourning without end. And so, two decades ago, David and Shin He coined this idea they called racial melancholia. It's about this ongoing mourning as it comes to identity. Processes like immigration and assimilation, which are never complete... They put immigrants and Asian Americans along a continuum where they can never quite mourn or get over the losses of homeland, of, of language, of culture. So this is what I've been suffering with my entire life. <laughs> There's a word for it. There's two words for it. Racial melancholia. Right. I want to say it. With a Spanish accent. <laughs> I was anyway. say, you put some, <laughs> put some Shireen on it. What about racial dissociation? Okay, so dissociation is when people are having experiences that don't line up with the way they're explaining those experiences to themselves. So if you're having an experience that is racialized, but you don't have the vocabulary to talk about that experience being about race or racism, hmm. or you don't believe that that experience is about race or racism, you get caught up in this weird bond. David calls this the conundrum of colorblindness. And you already see this with Amy in her first um, paragraph of the letter she sent you. She says that she has internalized racism, and that's part of the reason why she didn't really have many friends in high school who were Asian American. And then she says they were very difficult friendships uh, but they weren't due to race. <laughs> so it's it's a strange contradiction. Hmm. Amy didn't tell us what made the few friendships she had with other Asian-American kids so tough. But also she said that her white friends were her tormentors. Right. So clearly she can handle difficult relationships. Exactly. When she says my friends were also my bullies, uh, that part really kind of broke my heart. Because if you really consider someone a good friend, they should not be your bullies. And the bond she's in is that she's isolated herself from all the brown people who might be able to validate the way she feels about all this stuff. When she talks to her white friends, 
um, they have no idea what she's talking about, and they talk over her. And when she talks about race and her experiences, they disbelieve it. And then when she talks to her friends of color, um, they seem too radical for her. And again, that is the contradiction. And just to zoom out a little bit more, David said that to understand what Amy is going through specifically, we have to zoom out to the larger context of Asian American folks in American life. David says that Asian American folks have toggled between inclusion and exclusion as model minorities. And that's a very complicated history, but the thing about model minority status that we should remember is that it is entirely provisional. You can be, you know, a non-black person of color who might be allowed some proximity to whiteness, you know, as long as you don't shake the table or point out the problems with that arrangement. And that's true in the macro sense, in the larger societal sense. But you can see up close how it plays out for somebody like Amy. This idea of Amy being able to align with her white friends, to be an honorary white, to be a model minority, to be adjunct to whiteness, that is a long, long history. And real quick, David pointed out that the doctrine of colorblindness, that, you know, race doesn't matter, that we shouldn't talk about it, blah, 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 that really set in in the 1990s, about a generation or so out from the civil rights movement, right? And it meant that a lot of younger people who grew up after that time just do not have the vocabulary to talk about inequity and injustice. And so the students who David and his co-author Shinhi say they're talking to and meeting with, they're struggling with sometimes debilitating anxiety, specifically because they've essentially been denied the language to articulate these things that are happening to them and shaping their lives. Because colorblindness makes them dissociated. Exactly. Whew, that, that's a lot, Gene. Right? Like... <laughs> melancholy and grief and alienation as a consequence of structural racism. Maybe that's, mm, that's a lot. I feel like the government should all pay for us to have therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm with it. Put that on your platforms. So did David have any advice for Amy? Well, one thing she says she has going for her is that right now she is in college. Like, for a few reasons, that's a really big boon to her. Like, for at least a little while longer... She's in a place with a critical mass of people of color. David pointed out that people who live in homogenous spaces and then go to reasonably diverse colleges don't suddenly have diverse friendships after college, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a good chance that this is the most and last diverse space she may find herself in. Take advantage, Amy. And, like, that's important because David was like, look, there's no way you can get around being around brown people and Asian people specifically if you want to have brown and Asian friends. Mm -hmm. And because she's on a college campus, she also has access to counseling, which I wish I'd have taken advantage of when I was in school. Um, the big caveat, David said, was that whoever she talks to needs to have some cultural competency. Definitely. Right. Because if they don't know any of this history and if they don't know anything about the history of race in America... Um, as he put it, about the problem of culture, about the problems of language, about Asian-American immigration, about the idea of being a model minority. Um, Amy might end up reenacting the same dynamics in the clinic that she's experiencing outside of the clinic. But, David said, she might find the space she needs to work through some of her feelings in the classroom. So I think that there is a lot of times a false idea that ethnic studies programs, Asian-American studies classes, African-American studies 
classes that these are all me classes. It's about me, 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 and you know my victimization. It's not. It's actually about trying to understand the longer histories that get us to the racial conflicts that are around us, all around us today. And my job in the classroom is to provide the students with a history, but also a critical vocabulary, not just to understand their own life experiences, but how to contextualize those life experiences into a much longer history. And part of the way in which the clinic and the classroom come together is that in both of those spaces, these students are trying to re-narrate the story for themselves. And if they can re-narrate it either in the clinic or in the classroom, that can often be a very healing process. It definitely can. I am a product of those classes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I can say it was definitely very healing for me. And Amy, our producer Jess wanted to tell you that you don't have to stop kicking in with your white friends because they're white. I mean, Shireen says this too, but you definitely do not need to kick it with people who treat you poorly. Just remember that. So maybe you need to stop kicking it with them. (laughs) Perhaps. Yes, perhaps. We have arrived at our very last question, and it's about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, Gene. Um, All right, so I'm thinking about all of your favorite things that I know about. Um... Don't remember Rain us doing a question. roses and whiskers <laughs> on kittens. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> um, I don't remember us doing a question specifically about 90s hip-hop or, nope. like, dancing or Zumba or interior decorating. <laughs> um, is this a question about, a, like, a British period piece that gets in a class conflict between, like, the working class uh, and the elites in the same house? Is it one of those? Is that how? I don't know how it's a code switch question, but that's those are all your jams, basically. Those are my jams. I've watched Downton Abbey, Poldark, Sandington. <laughs> I actually really do hope that somebody asks us a question about class conflict in England very, very soon. Listeners, please hit us up. Uh, but this one is about something else that's dear to me. So you missed something in that list. Okay, which okay. is language. Oh, yeah, language. Hello. Language. Yeah, language is a big deal. That's, a, that's one of your favorite things. Our podcast is named after linguistic term. Anyway. Yes, this question is from a mother in New Mexico. Her name is Janeth, mm-hmm. and she wrote in because she wants her daughter to grow up speaking both Spanish and English fluently. Those are the two languages that you speak, right, Shereen? <laughs> Depending on who... Who I'm speaking to, and then you ask them <laughs> later, they'll be like, mm, I don't know if you can call that I don't Spanish. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yes, um, I speak Spanish and English. Ish. Um, I am a receptive bilingual. Hey, look, which... that's, that's fine. We don't kink shame on this podcast. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm a receptive bilingual. No shame <laughs> in that. Uh, you're going to learn about what that is in just a second because okay. I asked an expert to help me out with this question. Her name is Juliana Melzi, and she researches language development amongst Latinx kids in the United States. And okay. she's raising her own daughter to be bilingual. Juliana's originally from Peru, and she lives in New York City. I am a faculty member at New York University. I'm an associate professor of applied psychology. All right, I'm going to read you the question. Here we go. It's from Janet. 
My husband and I are trying to raise our daughter in a bilingual environment. I speak primarily Spanish to her while we're in the home, which my husband supports and encourages. However, when we are around people who don't understand Spanish, my husband thinks it's not polite to speak in a language which they don't understand. My worry is that if our child only hears Spanish in the home, she may think it's something to be ashamed about. She might think it's not as good as English. How can we encourage her language development and preserve her heritage while also balancing social norms? Big question. Good question. <laughs> First thing that I, I was curious about was this idea of raising a child in a bilingual environment. What does that mean to you? For me, it means that you are supporting the development of both languages so that ultimately the child will be able to communicate and function in two languages. But I think you're also tapping a little bit on the connection between language and culture. So um, raising a child in a bilingual environment also means developing their biculturalism. And how do you do that in a country where the dominant language is English? Yes, and, and I think also we have to take a broader perspective because it's not only that the main language is English, but English is a very cool language worldwide. And so it has higher status mm. than Spanish, and children are very attuned to that. Mm. Um, when children see that certain languages have a lower status, they have less motivation to learn that language and to continue using that language. And when does that happen? When they go to school? I would venture to say that very early on. A true anecdote, my daughter, when she started school, and we are raising our daughter bilingually mm -hmm. as well, when she started kindergarten, she went through a phase of not wanting to use Spanish when we got into the elevator and there were other people there mm. who she guessed did not speak Spanish. And she was five. So how did you push back on that with your own daughter? So I continued speaking Spanish, <laughs> and it so happened that around that time, she started um, her fascination with Shakira. Um, <laughs> yes, was um, was supported by the home environment. I started playing a lot of Shakira. <laughs> um, she resonated with Shakira a lot, and I encouraged that, and so she outgrew it. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic! So Shakira actually made Spanish cool for her, and gave yes. her, gave it yes. that cool factor that you were talking about. Yes. So to answer this woman's question, um, she says here that her husband thinks it's not polite to speak in Spanish, uh, out in public, when there are people around who don't understand Spanish. How would you respond to her husband? I, I think that, that he's being socially aware, and I support that. I okay. will tell you what I do, and I think that, that it works for us. So if we are outside in the street walking, we speak mm -hmm. Spanish to our daughter only. Um, if we go into a space where we are having a group gathering and there are people there that speak only English, let's imagine, and I want to say something to my daughter for her to do, so bring mm -hmm. me the plate that's in the on mm -hmm. the table, I would say that in Spanish. But if I want to communicate with a larger group of people, then I would use the common language, and that common language is English in that particular context. If you have been raising your child to identify you with a language, the moment that you start speaking in that other language, which is English, the child won't have the same need 
to communicate with you mm. in the home language. And so then eventually that child will turn to what we call a receptive bilingual. She will understand the language, but she won't use it. That's me. That's how I was raised. <laughs> It's very common. Completely. It's very common. The the research actually shows that around preschool, what is most predictive of children's bilingual abilities is going to be how much they use a language. So creating opportunities for the child to be able to use that home language with peers, mm-hmm. um, building play groups is, is critical. So it's not just about speaking to your child in the home or even speaking to your child one-on-one in public. It's about also encouraging your child to speak to other people that maybe they're not related to in the quote-unquote home language. Language is contextual, right? So certain vocabulary words are going to appear in certain contexts more than others. So so in order for the child to develop linguistic skills, strong, well-developed linguistic skills, they need to be able to see the language in diverse contexts. Only speaking the mm-hmm. language in the home, it's, it's good, and I applaud that, but it's not going to be sufficient. And what does it mean to be truly bilingual? That's the one million dollar question. <laughs> I, you know, I don't. I think that that what I can tell you what bilingual is not. <laughs> and, and, okay. Yes. Um, tell me that. Yes. So a bilingual is not two monolinguals put together. Right. I think that when we talk about bilingual children, we have this idealized idea that you're going to be able to function exactly the same. Right. In both languages. Right. And that's not that's that doesn't exist. Okay. I mean, not not really. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I, we we have this idealized picture of what a bilingual is, and I think we try to to meet that ideal, and and it doesn't exist. If you're functional in two languages, you're bilingual. That was Juliana Melzi. She's an expert in bilingualism and an associate professor of applied psychology at NYU. And that's our show. Gene, I hope you got your gossip fill for the day. But in case you didn't, we have a very important ask for our listeners. We're getting ready to do our next Ask Code Switch episode, and we want your very best questions about race in the workplace. Ooh, yes, (laughs) yes. Tell us about your, your, your trickiest, your chewiest, tensest most racially aggravating workplace drama. like Yes, we are here for it. Like the other cashier who always talks real slow to black customers or the boss who made a weird comment on Zoom about, you know, your ethnic home decor that they could see over your shoulder. Or that person you always get confused for at work because they're the other insert race or ethnicity here at the office. Shout out to Sam Sanders, who I always get mistaken for, for reasons that don't make any sense. I mean, Your I know why. Your workplace alter ego. Yes, yeah, no. bananas. It's it's very strange. Yeah. Anyway, send us your questions. You can send us a voice memo with your question to our email address, codeswitch at npr.org. Please use the subject line, ask codeswitch work. Work. You can also tweet us with your question. We're going to start a little thread over at NPR Code Switch. You can even message us on, on IG. We're at NPR Code Switch there on Instagram. If you don't have a question but just want to stay up on all the drama, want to be in the mess, like sloppy, sloppy, messy people that you are, subscribe to our newsletter. That's what all the cool kids are doing. And they do that 
by going to npr.org slash newsletters. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, on Spotify, NPR One, Stitcher, and Twitch, and Steam. I feel like I'm just making stuff up now. Yeah, wherever you like to listen. Wherever you, wherever you like to get down. The update of this episode was produced by Kumari Devarajan. It was edited by Leah Danella. And a huge shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia. We cannot do it without all of you. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Alyssa Jean-Perry, Natalie Escobar, Jess Kong, L.A. Johnson, and Steve Drummond. Our intern is Alyssa Beheza. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Me, myself, personally, I'm Gene Demby. <laughs> Be easy, y'all. Peace. A special thanks to our funder, the Ford Foundation, for helping to support this podcast. What do John Legend, Jennifer Lopez, and celebrity chef Samin Nosrat all have in common? I've interviewed them. Join me, Sam Sanders, every week as I talk with people in the culture who deserve your attention. Subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without Cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.